It's the Occult Mr. Podcast, where we talk about the mysteries hidden behind Mickey. Welcome to the Occult Disney Podcast. It's where we look for all the real magic hidden behind the Mickeys or something like that. This is Matt here. As always, joining me is Thomas, the paranoid American. Howdy. That's me. Paranoid as ever. Feeling paranoid. I, I, I cool. kind of like that intro. I know I know it always changes up a little bit. I, I like what you were working on in that one. I think maybe keep the valve on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just keep rocking it out. I, I, the, what I like to do is just not think at all about um, what I'm going to say before I do the intro. And the, the problem is I won't remember <laughs> it. I'll have to go back and listen, you know. <laughs> um, today we are getting to the end of the, the movies where Disney, the dude, is actually involved. Uh, it's the Jungle Book. Uh, he was more involved with this one than the last few films, uh, but died before they finished it. So, um Anyway, it's kind of a capstone, at least to the the Walt Disney legacy. From here on, the the company goes its own way. And and from some of the other videos and articles and documentaries that I saw about this movie in particular, Jungle Book, it they all sort of posed it as the last movie that Walt Disney personally oversaw. So, uh, is there another one that came uh, after this one that that might be? Uh, you know, like another last one, or is this in fact the last one that he had an active role in? He had a more active role in this one. Um, he had felt it. Uh, we talked before, like he wasn't completely happy with 101 Dalmatians and Sword in the Stone, but he was also busy with Disneyland and his TV show. So, uh, so then chronologically, this is the last major motion animated movie that Walt Disney personally sort of, you know, acted as. Right, uh, and the, the point ultimate... was, yeah, okay, yeah, the, the the buck stops with him, but um, yeah, since he wasn't completely happy with the last two, he was more involved in this one. Um, although he did not want the jazz in it, but he was dead, so they put it in anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I guess personally, just like in my own Disney dorkdom, uh, I would I usually consider the capstone being the uh the Epcot video. Because that was recorded what like a month and a half before Disney died, I think, with the with the big map of Epcot. That, that's great. I love that. The video. one where he was presenting the Epcot as like an like a legitimate option for society, right? Like everyone, yeah, a little bubble city, right? Yeah, and that one, if you just take, well, there's about thirty sentences he says in there where if you took it out and put it out of context you you would have some pretty wild stuff <laughs> like oh my god don't no. tempt me man i've been playing with uh voice ai so don't tempt me oh you you should you'll i mean you'll hear some of the most wildly fascist quotes but you know it's it's in the Watt persona you know america's daddy voice so it's like oh okay must be okay <laughs> you know and everyone's gonna live to control the controlled you know <laughs> Right. And if you become lame or lose function of your left arm and can no longer contribute to this functional society, then you'll be escorted out and you won't see your friends and family any anymore. Then you're going to have to live in celebration. <laughs> Which uh... what a sad! I, I kind of wish 
that you know we could get Walt's opinion on what celebration actually is because for anyone that's not aware celebration is sort of like a suburb right outside disney that was about as close as anyone legitimately tried to like i didn't want to call it like epcot because it's really just a place that rich people go and live that's just like on the side of this highway it's just it happens to be isolated by maybe a half mile drive into this little fake downtown and then the rest of it's just typical townhouses and regular houses but it, it is just so far away from the actual concept of epcot so i would kind of like to just hear walt disney rant on it maybe maybe that's the first one we should try <laughs> and um i mean they uh, disney doesn't even own that anymore i think they sold it like 15 years ago so yeah <laughs> but, but really I, you you wouldn't live there unless you were obsessed with disney it would be weird to live in celebration not because of disney making it like the main reason that you decided to go there possibly well you have you do have closer access to the parks i suppose so but yeah i, I think i heard someone living there saying like it's actually more convenient to go to downtown disney and shop than to shop in celebration or something because it's just you know it never really completely took off the ground it seems <laughs> yeah well C celebration has mostly restaurants and then a bunch of like little touristy shops and like a movie theater uh but it's not like an actual downtown to you know go and get things you would need there's no hardware store there's no liquor store there's no grocery store so yeah you're you're leaving the, the mainland <laughs> yeah so you know i do remember being in orlando once or twice back in the day and think oh we should nah, i can't be bothered to check that out so <laughs> what celebration yeah, yeah, because you know. I, I mean, curious. just look at it on Google Maps. That's you don't need a, a much bigger experience than that, unless there's something really specific you wanted to see there. I think that covered it for me. Um, but yes, we will get. So anyway, the the that's that's the sorry end to the original Epcot concept. Um, the real end of the Epcot concept, of course, is Guardians of the Galaxy. But <laughs> as I believe that ride is now opened. Yeah, I don't know. I I do like. I'm definitely one of those keep Epcot weird guys, probably because my parents took me when I was like four or five years old to early '80s Epcot. So, yep, same here. I was, once you once you were there, it's like, well, how could you like modern Epcot? I mean, I could have fun on the Guardians ride, I'm sure, but you know, um, there's no. And it's interesting too. Like, heard that maybe there uh, are. This is one of my favorite parts of. I think this was on the main park, but they had like the Tomorrowland, and it was kind of built around with that same sort of concept as when epcot was built but if you if like your parents went and saw it it really was tomorrowland and it really was like very futuristic and impressive and then when i went as a kid it was almost a little bit funny because they were talking about dishwashers and vacuum cleaners and like this was going to be a new wave of the future but if it, it felt like it was intentionally a little bit campy but now if you were to go back and watch that same thing it would just seem so dingy and outdated and everything. So uh, th there's some nostalgia aspect to it. But yeah, all those old rides just get phased out eventually. Tokyo, like we talked about before, the, the place I worked is now replaced with the Star Wars ride. Yeah. Tokyo now has, um, well, currently has a, a very old school Tomorrowland. I mean, it looks like 1983 Tomorrowland. They never changed it. Uh, and they keep it nice and clean. It doesn't look dingy. But... I heard they're going to actually rebuild Space Mountain and for the tune of half a billion dollars. So I'm going to guess they're making some changes to Tomorrowland soon. So uh, to to yours, you mean? Uh, Tokyo Space Mountain. They're gonna. I, I don't know if they're gonna actually destroy the building and build a new one or just gut it. But uh, one of those two. And there's uh, yeah, the, the budget's like half a million. 
excuse me, not half a yeah, the last time I billion, went to Space billion. Mountain, that one also looked like it it displayed its age a little bit. Yeah, oh, when I this was 2005 is the last time I went to the Magic Kingdom, but um, just I remember I'd been to Tokyo a few times before that, and it's just like the Magic Kingdom is like undoable after it's in Tokyo, unless you just can't handle the Japanese, but um, I mean, as in language wise, that sounds a little bit. Yeah, can't handle Japanese. <laughs> but uh <laughs> no, it's just like everything's like in good condition there. Everything's clean. Yeah. The, the food is actually good. So I, I don't think you I've never eaten decent food at the Magic Kingdom. You know but... what though? I, I want to put this one out here because there are places you can go in the Magic Kingdom and, and on the park, and a lot of them are actually executed by very high-level chefs. What it is is that the taste of all of the bumpkins that go to Disney is just the the worst palate ever so that even if you were to present like a really nice and well-cooked meal that wasn't just something normal you're always gonna be like you know can i get this with french fries you know bring me the ketchup so it's it's less of the disney not knowing how to make good food like you have to find and like you know go to the exact places that have it but they they cater to the average palate and the average palate in orlando and through tourism is just absolute garbage Oh yeah, I mean I've had um I don't remember the name, but there's a table service place in the middle of Animal Kingdom that's quite good. Uh a few of the Epcot, you know, some of the world showcase places are pretty good. But uh I, I know just like Tokyo Disney, you can go to the counter service and, and that's good. So, you know, which is definitely I mean it could be the case in Orlando now, but I kinda doubt it. <laughs> um, it's hitting me. You have to like you, you have to know exactly where to go if you want actual food versus what what essentially all comes from the same kitchen it'll look like four different restaurants but they all just share the same kitchen and then kind of like make the same kind of food you want to avoid those specific types yeah so um i did find just uh, to get us back to the jungle book i i think i found a picture of myself with uh king louis somewhere here so <laughs> but uh I, I yeah like the last time we went i guess it was my my wife and my belated honeymoon uh we did orlando and just like anytime we'd see a monkey we'd get a picture with the monkey you know so <laughs> I can't, I can't uh, find man I'm, I'm drawing a blank were there any jungle book specific rides anywhere in the parks i don't remember any i don't think there were any attractions but um while we were talking retro the mickey mouse review which was in orlando in the 70s ended up in tokyo and only closed maybe 10 years ago was i i saw it that was a weird retro blast. It has like something like 45 animatronics, uh, but they had a Ka, a snake as one of the electronics. I remember oh, like cool. heavily featured. Uh, I think, Oh, I think it was like Ka plays the, the flute, which is kind of weird. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, the most presence I've seen was in animal kingdom where they would just have a bunch of monkeys basically. My least pa- favorite park by far is animal kingdom yeah i guess I, i've only been there once and everything was like new so it was pretty exciting uh when i went it's just it's the least happy and the most smelly of all of the disney parks well, for it's got animals. obvious reasons I've, I've heard it called a heat sink for sure <laughs> i'm trying to make sure i i, I got the right monkey here Oh, uh, see, I, this is very old school. I have all my photos. I see, I'm looking for a photo on an audio podcast. Anyway, yeah, we got I got a picture of King Louis in there somewhere, and it's fun. And that's that's the main point. <laughs> uh, how 
Now, I feel like I'm not sure how much I saw this movie as a kid. I definitely know the Jungle Book well. This one is not one that I like didn't know the contours of or anything like that. Um, we have it on the Blu-ray, so I I, we, I must have put it on several times for my daughter. And I asked in the car if anybody remembered the um, the live action version from 2016, uh, if they remember that. And they're like, yeah, that was hot garbage, but they liked the animated one. So definitely tracks with the uh, the general Disney flow of live action remakes, I guess. I don't remember the. Have you ever seen the original movie that came before the animated one? The that 42 Technicolor one? Correct. Yeah. Have you ever seen yeah. that one? Now that I've just cited it, no, I've never seen that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't see the 90s one either, so because they did that uh, 90s one, which I guess was still Disney. So. No, I'm just I'm interested because when I was watching one of the documentaries on this one, they were talking about how Walt would go around to the animators and the writers and everyone working on it, uh, even the Sherman brothers, and would ask them, have you ever read this book, you know, the actual Jungle Book? And if they said no, he'd be like, good, don't, <laughs> you know, like we're making a different movie. Um, but it was just it was interesting that like that that was the approach on it yeah that that's a weird thing let's i mean it's still done today let's take this property and just like not do what you're supposed to do with it you know sometimes it's fun we're about to get the uh well I had a lot of that imperialism and i had a little of like darkness and occultism in it i'm just where i wonder if the original movie had that so i'm, I'm definitely gonna check it out oh um i would say probably uh, it's you know it's not like this from what I understand, it's not the same flavor as you might find in this one, but it, it's got its own stuff going on. It, it was in one of the top three movies, I think, the year it came out. And this one also being quite successful. This was easily the most successful. Um, I think Disney had been for about 10 years by this point when they put out uh, 67's Jungle Book. So, Oh, that um, Walt micromanagement actually did something, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He kicked him into gear a little bit. I mean, I think not. Well, you don't like Sword in the Stone anymore, but you used to. And uh, <laughs> you know, we were. There's nothing wrong with. I still like it. It's just. It's just no longer my number. It's no longer <laughs> possibly ever going to be my number one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that's fair enough for that. Um, I, I, this one's always kind of sat in the middle for me. I, I I like it. Um, it's it didn't go on as much as some of the other ones i think our, i i said in our dumbo episode that was the one that got played the most in the um much later i think like was it 2010 or something winnie the pooh movie that got played a lot too so i remember those being the the top hits when my daughter was a tyke so but the jungle book made a, a few views and yeah this seems like one i, I would have seen just in the matinee like you know when they take all the kindergartners to the movie theater on a summer afternoon to shut them up for a bit or let them scream at the screen in the movie theater i don't remember what happened but <laughs> i mean on a rewatch this one was surprisingly better than i remembered it being um the i think the songs were a lot better a lot of earwigs in this one which i think is probably why a lot of people remember it because the songs unlike some of the previous ones almost i mean i guess it's subjective but everyone on this one's a banger maybe save for one or two that i probably could have done without or that i, I don't remember as well yeah i mean bare necessities obviously well, not by the sherman brothers actually i think they, they tweaked it but that was a, actually uh from a different writer who well it was, was from the original writer that that wrote a lot darker one i was trying to find some of the darker ones and one of them is like 
we must find freedom otherwise like we'll find death or something like that so Despite it definitely had rage, a much I'm still just <laughs> yeah, in a it was just it was a, <laughs> some angsty guy writing but actually i wanted to say that bare necessities again rewatching it through the lens of this show i have major moral and ethical um objections to bare necessities and it almost <laughs> felt like this is the song that Soros is just putting out into the world. Like you might as well add a chorus about, and you won't own anything and you'll be happy. And we're all going to eat ants and you're all going to eat, you know, crickets and cockroaches for protein. And you're going to love it. I kind of felt there was some, some vibes of that coming. Well, the problem is you said it, you didn't sing it. You're going to not <laughs> yeah, own anything right. and you are going to love it. <laughs> so you got to do it. <laughs> so, I was just um, as we're recording this, the, the Star Trek's back on TV again, Picard, and and they mention like money and stuff again. And you're you're always like, how does money work in Star Trek? Because they're like, we don't have money, which I guess means it's it's like the Soros thing, like they don't own anything. But then if they get out, go outside of the Federation, suddenly they need money. So how does that work? Are you like trapped within the system that way? You know, well, and it's funny too. I mean, this this is actually a, a little niche that gets entertaining, but. They can just um, basically materialize anything, right? So they just have this ability to create money, like just counterfeit money and cause inflate. So the economies that they do have the chance to interact with, they can just destroy them on contact because there's no real financial ties to like, you know, provide some guidance or even prevent them from doing something tragic to an economic system because they don't, they operate outside of one. So that's always fun. Like, for example, you go to like Earth, modern day Earth, they could just start printing money and then just throw the entire economy out of balance and buy everything up if they really wanted to. But since they're, you know, the all knowing and all smart federation and they decide when you get to graduate into the real world, then it's probably like beneath them to even consider the ramifications of doing that. No, I just watched an old Voyager episode where they, they come across a planet where a, a couple of Ferengi. I have, uh, you know, the, the, the profit motivated aliens have crash landed on this like planet with a you know, pre-warp civilization, but they had a replicator. So they've made themselves God. So people come and pray to them and then they they go to the machine and give them what they want or or just <laughs> the rules of acquisition if they don't feel like giving them what they want. <laughs> I did love Voyager. That, that was also the one where they, they expanded on the secret society. There's like an Illuminati run by artificial intelligence and like the what is it? The Omega the Omega directive or something. Cause there's the prime directive. Oh yeah. Which yeah, is yeah. essentially the one where you won't interfere and you won't, you know, cause harm and things like that. But then the Omega directive is like, don't worry about the prime directive. <laughs> That's essentially the Omega directive. <laughs> rule if number you ever two, see this, rule number one. <laughs> this for, yeah, exactly. If you ever see this forbidden fruit, ignore all the rules and go after it. And I'm, I mean, I'm a like ridiculously diehard trekkie but yeah even for me i'm like well is that so great i mean it certainly looks great watching these shows and stuff but yeah um <laughs> well but, you know what it's, it would be great if you're a company man if if you can tow the company line and play in the system there's no better system in the world but if you just don't want to show up to work that day you just want to like sleep in or, or just not you know not play along like the federation's not really for you and i wonder what happens to those people like the the ones that don't you know tow the company line like where are they all living like do they also agree that oh yeah no money's great or are they all just in like 
some homeless planet that the Federation just ships everybody to, and they yeah, just the, have to like fight for themselves there. The backwater planets, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that, 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 that's that's bare necessities. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> very cat. But you know, we were talking about how Merlin was kind of grooming young author and sort of stone. I'm like, oh, Baloo's kind of doing the same thing in this movie. <laughs> and he's uh, he is a little to. bit. And but but it's actually um it's actually the the God, what's what's the name? I'm already blanking on the name. Um the pan the Black Panther also yeah. with name B. Uh but he's sort of the real wise old man mentor. And then Baloo comes along and Baloo is is almost like the like the the twenty year old kid that's still in high school and is still gonna have to repeat next year, but he's like really fun, but doesn't really care about anything, and that's probably why he's so fascinated with just the bare necessities, right? You don't need a job, just collect that government uh, check and just do whatever you want. We'll just mm-hmm. eat ants and be free. And meanwhile, the actual mentor is is thinking like, I can't compete with this. You know, it's this. It's this dumb kid fighting with an even older, bigger, dumber kid. Like, let me just, you know, hope hope for the best and see what happens here. See, I, I that's interesting because I, I read um, Baloo and I'm uh, bringing up his name here because I also forgot it because it was mildly weird um, <laughs> with the name. Uh, but... Bagheera. Bagheera. Oh, thank you. Okay, there we go. But yeah, I kind I felt like they were like kind of peers almost. I, I and Baloo being more like your Barney Rubble, like he's he's. Uh, technically a full-grown man but he's he's not you know <laughs> maybe although Bar- barney rubble was technically as successful or even more so than fred flintstone was so not only were they peers but they were equal peers in this movie baloo is just like the one that doesn't care like he's just i don't know i i have a i'm struggling to find a better way to to compare uh bagheera and baloo but bagheera is like the serious one that's actually trying to train this kid and Baloo's just like, let's just dance. Let's just dance and eat honey and eat ants and sing songs. It's um, like the and- uh, Simpsons where where Bart goes to the Indian casino and sees 15 years into the, or tw- however many years into the future. So Baloo's like the uh, <laughs> him play, playing, trying to play rock with Ralph Wiggum or whatever. And uh, Okay, yeah, and, no, no, no. I like that. Yeah, I like this. You got Lisa Simpson's sure. the president. <laughs> they definitely <laughs> died on equal terms there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Anyway, that that that's the big earworm, and uh, I, that's the thing. Blue is very likable. I mean, I, I think we got a picture with Blue somewhere on there as well. So, <laughs> and Blue has to be the inspiration. Well, first he he graduates a little bit in Robin Hood into um, uh, the sidekick. Uh, I, well, I'll have to remember all the names when we actually get to that movie. Was it Prince John or so? Or not Little John, but uh, he ends up being like one of the 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 like the king guy. And then he also turns into Tailspin, I believe. I'm pretty sure that that's the main character in Tailspin came from Baloo. That's yes, that is correct. So there's a place where I'm not in the parks, but yeah, this continues to go on. I, I did notice uh, just doing my notes the entire time. I, I confused uh, Mowgli with Mogwai, you know, the uh, from Gremlins and also the name of a post. How, how did you get that confused? <laughs> I don't know, but I realized I think I've been confusing the two my entire life. I just. Yeah. Oh, you've always uh, been calling the kid Mogwai. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought the band named itself after Jungle Book, but it's, it's Gremlins. <laughs> so yeah. So oh well. <laughs> it and apparently Mo- Mowgli. There, there was two ways to pronounce it. There's Mowgli, and then there's Mowgli, and there was a fight over 
not like a fist fight, I don't think, but uh, I was between hoping was. the actual pronunciation and then when um Disney adapted it, they he like intentionally changed the name. I mean, I've I've got some notes on this that I think Disney intentionally occulted some of the story here. And that's why he didn't want people to read it, and that's why he wanted to kind of distance it and turn it into this nice, beautiful, family-friendly thing with just a bunch of earwigs in it because he wanted that older, darker book to just live longer than I think it would have without it. Okay. It does, I guess we should get a bit into Kipling at this point then, which I, you know, obviously he's a well-known figure, but I did, I intentionally didn't go delving into him before this podcast because uh, I, I thought you might have something. So what do you got? <laughs> uh, so, so for anyone that's not aware, Kipling was like a British author. He loved India and he was just huge into sort of occultism and mysticism and he believed that india was the true central origin of human consciousness essentially and that all the secrets were essentially hidden somewhere in india and he was just fascinated with that for his whole life and he shared this fascination with a friend of helena blavatsky uh, madame blavatsky who's the one that essentially is credited uh arguably with bringing just all Eastern esotericism into the Western world. And that's where you get Crowley from. And it's where you get um, the Theosophical Society from. And it's where you get maybe World War II from on on some levels. And this guy was um, a member of the Theosophical Society. And I think he joined it in the late 1880s and remained a member for his entire life. So it would be an understatement to say that he was into occultism. He was like, the most OG into occultism before people even knew what occult like occultism had just been invented essentially and like a, a global Western, you know, unrevealed uh, scheme. He was sort of one of the forefront, um, you know, founders of all of that. So it's, it's just really interesting that Walt Disney seemed to like seek out these books. Apparently Walt and by the thirties, he already had pinned this book as like, I want to work on this. And then it took, another three decades to actually start on something well i mean that happens with a lot of these things they they had a um working plans for frozen in like 1940 but uh you know it's it's what you get through the pipe but yeah i've i guess i've always thought of kipling as being like captain imperialism you know so i do well, that's just that's just part of it that's yeah so, yeah so the occultum is is what makes him fascinated with India and vice versa. It's just like this Ouroboros of, I love India, so he finds this occultism, and then he falls in love with the occultism, but then he attributes it to the Eastern world because that was sort of in the, the time. Because everyone knew about paganism and the Romans and the Greeks, and you know they were, it was like old school. So finding all of this Eastern mysticism and specifically it being translated into uh english and other european languages it was this new big boon for occultism that i pretty much were still embracing today like all the tarot and constellations and horoscopes and a lot of that uh basically stems from this theosophical society so again this it would be an understatement to not mention how incredibly big role that played in all of Kipling's kind of work. So, so that being said, some of the things that he worked on immediately after joining the Theosophical Society um, from the same author of the Jungle Book. So he had um, a, he wrote a bunch of several stories on a cult and supernatural. One was actually called the Mark of the Beast. 
uh, and then one was called the Phantom Rickshaw, and he was trying to get into supernatural horror. And I think this is one of the reasons that Disney wanted to distance himself a little bit from the original Jungle Book and all the other stuff that Kipling had worked on, because outside of poetry and the Jungle Book, he really did focus on like macabre sort of stories and and horror supernatural stuff that tied in all these occult elements. Yeah, I don't know. Could, could Disney do Edgar Allan Poe? That's I'm just thinking of a lifetime uh, you know, macabre. I mean, he stuff. was into just killing parents right off the bat, but I think <laughs> that maybe he was just trying to to be a little bit more light handed with it. And some of the original storyboards for the initial concept for this movie, Jungle Book, uh, they were so much cooler looking than I think what we ended up with. Because again, we got. We got sort of the one that you pop in with your kids in the living room and it turns into a babysitter and you don't worry too much about it because it's all sort of, you know, G rated. But that the original storyboards, like they were traveling through these kind of lost temples and the the places that you would imagine Blavatsky and her little crew having to go and unreveal these hidden civilizations and find these big skull mountains and like peel back the moss hair and like go into the nostril like all of that stuff was in those original storyboards so it would have been really cool to see that more occulted version for sure yeah i guess for my reading i I do a lot of reading but i always had a very strong wall between me and victorian era writing i just i can't get through it i've never gotten through any actual lovatsky you know (laughs) Well, it's not an easy read for sure, but uh, it, but it was it was before people even really knew how to to put chapters together in a way that people wanted to read it, not just for organization, but for like you know uh, being conducive to wanting to be a page turner, even if it's kind of reference material. But back then, it was just like blah 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 blah, blah and the the chapter would just go on forever and ever, like because what else did you have to do right like most people did go to a four-hour lecture it's not like they had a game waiting for them at home or anything else going on so um it it reflects a lot of that but i but again it's so interesting because it's this very occult knowledge that even in the 30s when walt falls in love with the jungle book no one's really as hip to the the actual origins of all that i mean 30s there's definitely a revival of occultism and the art nouveau and um like all the egyptian and egyptology influence people started getting into it again but a lot of it was aesthetic and it wasn't necessarily reading the actual works of blavatsky and uh the things that kipling was into so he tapped into the actual backstory and then again walt's just like yep we're gonna take that we're just gonna make it look fun and cartoony and bam now that's part of culture for the next hundred years plus I, I, yeah, I'm seeing. I think I couldn't do Blavatsky, but I could get through Manly P. Hall. Okay, maybe it's just maybe it's just t- hearing. Well, American that's the Idioms magic of Manly P. Hall, man. He <laughs> he had that knack of putting things in very man. One of the first Manly P. Hall books I wrote, um, I read. He was making this analogy to occultism to like walking down um like a, a city street and going window shopping and deciding like what suits you'd wear and what jewelry you'd buy. And then he was talking about like, this is how people look at a lot of this knowledge and stuff. But his analogies, it's always like, imagine you're a blue collar working person walking down a street and you look into a window, like no other sort of esoteric writer would have ever been that casual because they always like to keep this esteem of like, you know, like occulted mystery and mysticism and like all this advanced knowledge 
and Hall would always just bring it down to like a regular casual conversation level. So that's, I mean, that is the thing that made him unique. I'm just sitting here wondering if that might be part of what had such a resurgence in the 30s. Not that everyone was out reading the secret teachings of all ages, but enough people did to, you know, influence other people. And it was maybe a little more trendy in the 30s because now you could like kind of understand this stuff because um yeah the 1890s version definitely seems like we're going to be sitting in a, a drawing room you know speaking in hushed serious tones about this stuff <laughs> well i've got i've got some other theories without going too much on tangents but prior to the advent of the internet essentially or or barnes and noble even right we'll just say barnes and noble or, or like bookstores um but like maybe before the 1970s when when sort of fringe bookstores became really popular comic books and and underground scenes you had to be just wealthy and have lots of free time to even be interested in the occult because a it meant that you didn't have like a normal job because being real deep into the occult unless everyone else that you worked with was also it could get you kind of blackballed from you know certain communities and and other things like this but then on top of that it's not like you just had access to these books or that they were they were cheap. A lot of these books were very expensive. You had to do it through mail order. You had to order from like very specific places and they were all very ornate and intricate. It, they didn't have a lot of like the cheap paper, you know, mass produced paperback edition of secret teachings of all ages. Um, or actually, that might that might be the best, ex- not, not be the best example, because I think Manly P. Hall intentionally tried to make stuff cheaper. But like his library would have been cost a fortune to get access to. So this ends up being, you know, Manly B. Hall, but also lots of government employees that are just banking off stuff. And then a lot of Hollywood who um, start becoming the first kind of wave of celebrities that have all this extra expendable money. And that's kind of why occultism takes off in those communities because they've got the time and the money to get involved with that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, for sure. I'm just thinking... Um part of the whole london scene was uh you know the the beatles getting involved with as an indica bookstore or something which was you know is oh in london you can get this sort of stuff i mean there's the expensive private victorian era bookstore too but this was supposed to be the more like young and hip place and and that's well, and know, one with- of those places that a lot of the the way that they were able to get all that information stay those places is there was like man i, I don't know enough about british um rock history but i know that there was this story that it was like a certain building that someone owned and just over time, like 20 or 30 huge musicians would just roll through there and live there and work out of there. And it was like right in the center where everything was at or all the studios were at and all the, the artists were at. So they literally just had like a building that if you were into, you know, occultism and music and art and, and sort of all this underground scene then you just had a place to live and stay right there in the middle of town. Um, and and that's what facilitated so much of that connection with occultism and rock music uh, in those days. Um, I think there might be more than one instance of that. I know at the the UFO Club and early Pink Floyd. That's how that got started. But and uh, it was originally supposed to be like, oh, this is kind of a philosophist school, you know, maybe magical. But once the band started taking hold and everyone was doing tons of acid there which actually the band didn't do much of it except for Sid Barrett but um you know once everybody's just getting whacked out and grooving in the music the music became the thing and not the uh the the school aspect so 
you know, the, the young. People. I mean, that sounds way more boring, right? Like, who wants to read this, these old ancient? Like, even you said, like the, the Victorian writing of occultism. <laughs> it's not like the easiest thing to digest. Versus, you know, listen to someone pick a guitar solo out while you're taking acid. So yeah, you can't read. You're not going to read a lot of Victorian occultism on acid and and take away a lot from it. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's right. Um. Getting to the movie a little bit, I just uh, I, I'm sure we'll get back to Kipling some, but I was thinking about the animation. This one's kind of interesting because all the, the animations look good, the backgrounds look great. They don't always seem to match each other. <laughs> There's also no shadows at all. They were just like, we're not going to worry about shadows. In in some of the previous movies, the shadows were inconsistent. Sometimes there, sometimes not. Sometimes not necessarily matching the, the right shades but on this one a majority of the movie there's just no shadows casted by the characters at all which was it stood that, out to me that might have been what got me because i was just for a lot of sequences like in a way i could appreciate the animation more because i could just clearly tell it cells on top of a background you know <laughs> yeah but they, but they weren't integrated into that background like the background didn't affect them and they didn't affect the background as much as some of those previous movies i think Okay, it wasn't just me then. That's cool. Um, and, and another thing too, and this one bugged me, and I and I have a note on like how spoiled am I to complain about this old school style of hand drawn cell animation that just takes forever, and no one will really ever reproduce it again. But that being said, there were some frames where it's like I can see the the pencil marks that didn't get fully erased on some of these uh, cells, and I don't know if it's because I was watching like the Disney timeless collection edition that might have been you know like upscaled versions of original um cells and maybe like the original release didn't show it as clearly you know it's like when you see the pores on a character's face because they like you know remastered the the film from like the 80s and it's like oh yeah they, they actually had pores on their face mm -hmm. uh but I, but I don't know that also stood out to me and it was like with the 101 dalmatians too and i don't know if maybe it's just still adapting to new technology and just getting caught in how fast it is or maybe once they scanned it it, it would have been extra effort to get rid of those like half erased lines that made it all the way through but they stood out to me and and it was like oh that's a little bit messy <laughs> I, I remember um somewhere in the mid 90s my my father and i went to see the the imax rolling stones thing and my dad's comment walking out of there was like i could count the nose hairs and mick jagger's yeah. nose <laughs> <laughs> so what was i watching i was it's a blu-ray from i don't think it's timeless collection but it's 20 a 2014 blu-ray but um th this was driving me mildly insane because every once in a while i'd want to look something up or make a note like and pause the movie did, did you pause the movie uh, actually, I mean, mine was what had some issue where it was broken up from like the Blu-ray menus. So every time it changed scene, it would stutter a little bit. So I explicitly saw like the break between every scene. So oh, that wasn't the problem I had. It was when I wanted to pause the movie to make a note or, or maybe just think about something for a moment. It would go into when you pause the movie, it doesn't just pause. It goes into this other side trip where um. Baloo goes on some kind of weird monologue for about 30 seconds oh, and then really? he goes no, into a know. song I'm like it's like no I want to think I, want, I don't want sound <laughs> and vision so right now that's why I paused the movie <laughs> so I, <laughs> I felt like I was getting like you know like 
mind controlled tortured by disney in that in that way and and then i'd like forget why i paused the movie you know so it worked <laughs> yeah so oh because i wrote everyone loves blue or dewey you can't just pause this movie it goes into a weird okay why i just said so <laughs> yeah i don't know if i love blue I, I i still feel like he was the one that possibly could have led this whole thing stray he almost got Mowgli killed uh he himself almost dies and then doesn't take his own death very seriously. So he he comes away to me as as like, oh, I'm not gonna say a bad guy, but a bad influence for sure. Okay, he's a bad influence. I'll I'll he's, give him he's that. the the Huckleberry, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Although I was just um, yeah, I was just uh, who who mentioned that I, at the end of Huckleberry Finn, where uh, I think Jim is trapped in the smokehouse and. Huckleberry, in that case, I believe is the, the voice of reason where he's like, why don't we just dig a hole underneath and let him out? And Tom Sawyer is the one coming up with like insane plans that make no sense. <laughs> I mean, it's so, a fair point. I think Huckleberry was more street smart. Sometimes when you're, I guess, more lazy, it helps. You know, there, there's a certain edge to being lazy sometimes because your plans are less convoluted. <laughs> oh, man, I, I wish I could remember the exact quote on command here, but it's like uh laziness is the the best breeder of ingenuity or something like that or laziness breeds ingenuity yeah yeah i, I think i that's supposed to be uh, getting back to the beatles that, that was the whole john lennon thing apparently he was a uh, part of the genius was him, him finding the simplest way to do things because he was lazy yeah <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's cool i can get that um what else do we have in here we got the elephants the military elephants that's pretty I mean that's that is the imperialism like coming straight through, but then it's in the elephants, so it's native. So, um, are they like conscripted troops? I don't know. Oh, well, I mean, it works out right because they can't be imperialists if that's their native land, which kind of is the exact opposite of imperialism. Is <laughs> it doesn't happen from within, right? It, it's this outside force that imposes its will on you. But it, the rest of this movie. Man, the the Disney did a good job again of occulting it and whitewashing it a little bit, but man, that the original book and some of the quotes from it and just Kipling's attitude in general, it essentially just boils down to yes, this area and in the book or in the movie, it's it's the jungle, right? These jungle animals. Like they're noble and they've got great information and insight, but we're still superior and it's and it's up to us, and this is what Kipling called the white man's burden, which I think is the the you know original place where this came from. That phrase of the white man's burden, and that it basically like you had to send your sons out to these horrible places like India, his words, not mine, <laughs> in order to sort of tame the natives and show them how to be civilized, and that that was the white man's burden was that you had to lose your own life and your own kid's life to help civilize the rest of the world and bring them up to the British imperial standards. And you definitely get that, that air of authority. Uh, and these, you know, the elephants specifically kind of mention that, right. They're making sure everyone's in line. Everyone's um, like posing. It's, it's kind of like that, that military uh, breakdown of making sure everyone is the exact same type of shape. You even, I mean, even give someone a, a haircut on demand. I mean, you you still get that today. Um, I was sent a review copy, so I, I read the Prince Harry book, where he's kind of still got that kind of attitude, but at the same time, he's trying to sound, you know, kind of woke as well. So he ends up sounding like crazy. 
I love you're you're selling it a little bit to be honest. Now now I'm interested. Yeah, he's like I killed this many people in Afghanistan, which made the headlines. But then he's talking about these weird like um hunting. What what is the Scottish summer home that the Royals have Balmoral or something? He's, he's talking about these hunting scenes, and I'm just sitting there thinking, you know, they could have if you want to get this wild conspiratorial and be like, oh, they were hunting people, that kind of takes, that kind of works. Now, is this the same place that the Queen would stay and Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell? Have you seen that? There's like a picture of them both staying at the same uh, cottage. If it was summer, probably. <laughs> so, yeah, that was my point, though. They got this summer palace like in the middle of the Highlands or whatever, Scotland, and, you know. I, I found just reading Prince Harry's book fascinating because he's trying to talk about his experiences there, but some of it seems like intentionally vague, you know? <laughs> 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 of course, that's my whack mind probably reading into or not. I don't know. So yeah, maybe. No, I mean, I, th I think he's got an interesting past here because didn't he also get caught in the early 2000s wearing like a Nazi uniform to some party? Um, so he, he was clearly an edgelord like way back in the day. Harry was absolutely the edgelord. Like, there's no question about that. And that, that, yeah, he actually does address that in the book. And you can take his reason or not. But, uh, yeah, which I he think didn't was... know. So he, someone got him drunk and they, they put, they dressed them for him and he had no idea what was going on. Well, his excuse is that, um, I, I, maybe he heard about the costume thing late and he went and they, all the only place he could rent was like that or a pilot's uniform. So he asked his brother which one and the, you know, yeah, maybe that was oh, he blamed his brother. He blamed his brother, kind of. He says I was in a rush, and and Kate and Willie were like, yeah, maybe. Although I'm pretty sure the pictures that I've seen were like him blackout drunk wearing this. So <laughs> that's I the mean... way to wear it. <laughs> I mean, it was not wrong in that case. <laughs> anyway, it it was a, one. It's easy to read because it's it's well ghost written, so you can you know crack through the thing in a few hours, even though it's got a lot of pages. So, um, but. Yeah, I was just kind of fascinated because uh, just to because all the headlines are coming like, no, this is I, I want to see what this actually says, you know. So, again, with the Jungle Book, like if you're watching this movie, you're not really getting what it actually says, because this book from 100 years earlier has a very different, you know, vibe than we're going to have sing along time with the family. Yeah, so so on, yeah, we, we can get into some of the more of my serious notes here, <laughs> oh, man, there's, there's so many things to, to vibe on. But I just want to I want to cut straight to some of the more interesting notes and then we can go back to to joking a little bit. <laughs> but one of them I, I took this because comparing the types of works that Kipling himself was interested in, he clearly believed in a lot of Indian philosophy and religion. So this uh, symbol of Mowgli essentially is like this primal kid, right? Right. Like a feral child raised by wolves, literally. Uh, which represents this like base animalistic nature of people. So, so Mowgli in this movie is the native that imperialism is tasked to sort of train. And that's him going, having to go to like the man city. And that's why it's like this big trek. And that's the big ending is, is he gets reunited and then decides he wants to go back into the jungle essentially. And even that's kind of what the song is about of bare necessities is like, don't worry about the human world stay here in this primal world um, but at the same time all these other animals realize like even king louis uh represents a, like someone that oh, is aware that they're in plato's cave essentially and that mowgli is his ticket and he's talking about uh, i want the um the man's red fire which is could be basically enlightenment like i'm this monkey 
and I want what humans have, which is enlightenment. But ironically, the human is obsessed with staying in like this base animalistic nature. So that's that's what the original book is pretty much based around. You lose a little bit of that in the movie, but knowing that backstory, you can see it come out in the movie again. But in the book, it's a lot more explicit about all of these kind of challenges and story arcs that, that the character is going through. And the direct references to the occult and everything is, is a lot more prevalent. I think the book doesn't the book have a lot more back and forth between the village and the jungle. Like, cause, you know, yeah, it, it just... plays a bigger role because, because again, it's like man's struggle uh, to you know tame <laughs> tame these natives, and then also that that native of Mowgli representing uh, like like the human intellect and maybe not being ready to reach enlightenment, and then maybe getting closer to it on each step. I mean, I, I'm sure Kipling was fully aware of you know guys going off into Himalayan caves to meditate for like years at a time. <laughs> Which, of course, that's an older person. I, I guess that's that's like the opposite is I, what I'm getting at. That that's kind of going into the wilderness to seek enlightenment instead. Kind of. Uh, I mean, again, like the, the from the imperialist standpoint, their enlightenment is going into these areas and helping other people reach enlightenment because in doing so they they learn more about you know primitive rituals and how it applies and but but for kipling and this imperialist attitude it's all just because it's a, an outstanding reconfirmation of how superior they are to the animal world and and to like these natives that they're basically taming so the enlightenment is more of like a, an enlightening pat on the back of like look what a great job we're doing to make this world better and it's probably less of Let's just like humbly enter this other culture and observe quietly and respectfully and just take the the lessons back. It was very much like, and let's get a thousand troops over here and just snap them all into line uh, and show them, you know, how, how a, a society really works. Show them how it's really done for sure. Um, well, let, how about some of the other creatures of the forest? I guess we've gotten enough about blue uh I, I i got it okay here's my note i assume a jungle bum is just a close cousin to a parrot head so maybe that's that's blue's <laughs> energy like the, yeah blue's a parrot head <laughs> yeah because i you know i've heard those those uh jimmy buffett concerts can get like really like old person horny you know <laughs> middle or middle middle to elderly horny at concerts with well, i don't know that they've, they've actually have margaritaville housing resorts. developments in Florida yeah, yeah. now. Yeah, I know. Well, That's well, there's the resorts, but there's also like if you want to just go and retire, you can you can live at Margaritaville literally. Well, I I I have to admit to being an occasional bar fly at the Margaritaville uh last time I lived in the states cuz we lived we lived near a mall and the Margaritaville was like a 3 minute walk, so who doesn't like a $20 <laughs> and, margarita? And, uh, <laughs> they were cheaper at the time. Was, yeah. I I'd go for happy hour, you know. Because I live next to it, so and I never paid twenty bucks for one of their margaritas. <laughs> I don't remember. So I, I, I think Baloo. I've met, and that's the best analogy. Truly, is the parrot head Baloo. So let's. Uh, and we uh, we talked about King Louis a little bit. He wants what man has. He wants King fired. Louis. He's also a little bit of a trickster because he sort of tricks Mowgli into making this like this deal that he's not even realize he's making. And all he gets in return is like a song. <laughs> and then he has to, Mowgli in return has to give him the power of enlightenment, essentially, which is kind of a great deal for King Louis. Uh, he, it was also probably my favorite songs were all from King Louis. 
In this oh movie. yeah, well that's that's Louis Prima singing, right? Which they Correct, caught yeah. they caught themselves this time because uh, he's Italian, right? The original idea was to have a different Louis. They were going to cast Louis Armstrong, and someone you know raised up their hands and said, maybe we shouldn't you know cast the black man as a monkey. Yeah. That people might not <laughs> like that. So <laughs> is that really how that went down, or or did it just work out like that? Pretty much, I think they pretty much like we can't cast a black man as a monkey that's not going to be good pr for us <laughs> to be honest until i started doing research for this episode i always assumed that it was just some black jazz singer because it sounds like it you know what i mean i never would have guessed it was no, i want to assume he's cuban or something yeah yeah uh, i think he's italian american italian american italian american just pure right. italian american okay um but yeah it's um it, you know they'd already had song of the south come out and that was always controversial right so let's, let's step into it again you know <laughs> so so I, I liked him um and then I, also i think ka might have been my favorite character in this whole movie as a you, kid and maybe even now i'm not i'm not settled one way or the other but i i love his character which of course is one of our our prime disney voice actors you, you i'm sure you reckon oh, i'm not sure winnie, but yeah winnie the voice? pooh the stork and dumbo uh yeah, the cheshire yeah. cat yeah right was, right one of my favorite voices for sure but i just love the juxtaposition that that's that's poo but this is creepy now okay that's <laughs> kind of fun <laughs> well poo's always been kind of creepy but... well they, it's it's supposed to be absolutely terrible but since you know since the copyright is now um public domain there's the british film poo blood and honey that just came out yeah, where, i haven't um, seen it yet where christopher robin goes to college and doesn't leave food behind so piglet and Pooh go feral and start murdering everybody <laughs> but they can't have well, anything so disney in it like Pooh doesn't have a red shirt because that's disney disney's part of the uh the they still own that ip right they just don't own the character himself so if it looks like the books you're good to go you you can make your own Pooh movie now if you want <laughs> you said Pooh movie yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to make a different. note too on uh, on Mowgli because I man I I can't I've been looking for this research multiple times and I can't remember the exact name of it but there was this study on feral children in the late '90s I believe and it was called I'm gonna butcher the name of it but I'm pretty sure it was called like the bicameral brain theory or the the bimanifold brain theory. And every time now that I look up by manifold, it's just like a bunch of car parts and, and random, completely unrelated things. But there was this theory that if you were a feral child and you lived in the wilderness and you were truly raised by wolves or whatever other animal that ended up raising you, then there were certain points in your development as a child that if you didn't have human interaction, you'd basically stay in this reverted animal state forever because there was a, an actual biological difference in the way that your brain formed versus someone else like uh someone that living in society and is learning from other humans and complex human interactions it increases the plasticity of the brain and it helps actually develop more neural connections and yada 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 but if you just live among wolves and you never have like the verbal and the, and the non-verbal communication that you would have with uh animal or you know humans and also if you actually move around on all fours and just destroy your your knees and your hands and everything like there's actual mechanical things that you're no longer developing that you'd expect to see and you know like the age of a toddler or like a young kid so by the time long story short by the time you're like seven or eight if you haven't had a lot of human interaction and somehow you miraculously are still alive eating 
raw flesh with your mm-hmm. your wolf you know den um there's almost no real way to to develop on that a little bit like fargo but way less progress like it just imagine fargo but they can't get her to do anything mm-hmm. yeah i mean even for us like i still my japanese is still garbage you know i didn't have a second language growing up and now trying to get a second language is just you know banging my head against the wall i can study stuff one day come back the next day and remember like nothing you know uh, right you could spend the next three or four years and get mediocre but if if you would spent those three to four years when you were six through nine six through ten now all of a sudden like that would have made a huge impact and you could be fluent even if you didn't necessarily practice it as much after that it's it's weird but there's there's absolute you know actual proven differences as you're growing up in those ages and again we're talking specifically about feral children it's it's a point here because he just miraculously like knows english because all the animals know english which might go into more of that occult like he can actually talk to the animal spirits and whatnot but if if you just take a look at this kid living in the jungle he doesn't act like a feral kid at all if anything from day one he's teaching all the animals how to be a human but where did he learn how to be a human he he didn't yeah, because he had his his full on, with Moses or Mithras start right, so uh, almost getting eaten because uh, it would have made a perfectly fantastic meal as a baby. So that's surprising he didn't get eaten. <laughs> I wanted to hit what what other characters we we haven't talked about with Shri Khan yet. For one, I just I know it's impossible, but I just decided he was voiced by alan rickman who would not have done the voice in the <laughs> 60s but it was just such a rickman vibe you know but and man there's so many similarities too to the the lion king um with this particular dynamic where in this movie it's khan and his vultures and then in lion king it's basically um the hyenas but they play like the exact same role of playing with the food before it gets eaten kind of deal Oh yeah, and and I was thinking kind of like Khan's, you know, he's literally like the reverse of um, Mowgli because it's like you can have a pet tiger until it gets a certain age, and and like you said, then the the animal instincts kick in and you can't have a pet tiger anymore. At least not one that you can play with. <laughs> Shout out to the Tiger King. Yeah, I didn't actually never saw that. I was thinking about Mike Tyson owning tigers in the past, but. <laughs> He probably got him from the Tiger King, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, bro. Uh, did he? Okay, that's cool. <laughs> anyway, yeah, a pet tiger sounds fantastic for what, a year? Is that how long you can have your pet tiger and roll around with it? You can't roll around with I mean, Khan. He'll, he'll slash you. It's basically until you can stop affording to feed him. Yeah, yeah, and, and then you get eaten. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, but, and, uh, and Khan in this movie, I think, interestingly, he's the ego. Khan represents the ego even to the point where in the making of they were talking about Khan's character is so full of himself and he's so self-confident that he doesn't even have to act like an actual tiger you know like he doesn't do a lot of tiger type things he's very casual but that casual attitude you realize is because he knows he's such a badass and that he could just kill you and devour you at any second so he just he kind of embellishes in that superiority in a way and he he represents just the pure ego and the whole book, or at least in this movie, again, it's it's Mowgli 
fighting against Khan essentially. So it's him first has to defeat his ego, and then he has to basically reconcile this human intellect without losing his animal nature. So what is that? I guess it makes Baloo the id, and uh, perhaps um, the panther, whose name I'm forgetting yet again, would maybe be our our super ego because he. I mean, what he says should happen is basically what happens at the end, right? And he sits back and he watches as the id and I guess whatever Mowgli is are like interacting. And it's like, yeah, I'll let you guys, you know, figure this out. When this you guy's, guys got to like work this out of your system. And in this metaphor, I guess Mowgli is just the, the, the basic spirit, the the individual, right? And then uh, we, Yeah, the animal spirit, right? And then we layer on the animals as the actual psychological components. Like That's an interesting <laughs> way to look at this. Yeah, sure. We could do this. We could do a whole, uh, um, you know, Jungian jungle, the jungle book. <laughs> the jungle book. Yeah, okay. I like that. My first one was the jung, Jungle Book, but that's just because it sounds silly. Um, I like the Jungle Book. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, I definitely like that better. Yeah. Um, the last, the last scene of this movie is icky, like just in an icky way. Yeah, I could just do without <laughs> it. I did. They, they, I mean, they could have ended it. Yeah, it was just too many shots of like fluttering eyes from like a seven-year-old girl. I'm like, that's um, that's not, yeah. That's a little funky. Okay, and then, and, and then also the if that's another totally thing that he bizarre. learned from the uh the his feral wolf pack, it probably wouldn't have turned out good for her. It wouldn't have been a a romantic first night out. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, I, I learned this from the animals. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, I definitely just thought that. I mean, I see. That's the thing. It's like, what what was the motivation for making that scene exactly? Is it just supposed to be? Cute? I think it was. Well, it was to represent that he was finally embracing another human, essentially. Because prior to that, he had that same aspect of Khan, where Khan didn't like humans. And this kid, he kind of preferred just living in the jungle. So this was that carrot that got dangled of like, hey, there's this, there's this sweet seven-year-old, uh, you know, uh, reward waiting for you if you join humanity and and let colonialism and imperialism basically, you know shape you into the man that you're supposed to be and so i songs, think that i mean that's what it was her song is creepy i'm not down with that song <laughs> yeah honestly the, like this movie i feel like like i want my own personal version where you just cut that entire section out <laughs> and the rest of it's good i mean they just have him go into the village that's fine anyway I, I fade to black yeah go he's heads into the village fade to black you wonder what happens afterwards and then yeah. there was a second jungle book book um but I don't think that one got incorporated into a Disney movie. I don't know, actually. Do you know I, if any of the newer remakes considered that one? I, I believe elements of that have made it into most of the remakes. Um, okay. Just so it kind of like a Alice in Wonderland thing where you can't even re remember what's actually in which book anymore if you're watching the film versions because it's all just a mishmash half the time. Well, and because Disney decided he how he wanted to redefine it, right? It's, di it's interesting because Disney is not the creator of these stories but they're like the, the authority on these stories now like most people familiar with the jungle book i'm going out on a limb and just making it a broad assumption here but most people right now familiar with the jungle book are familiar because of the disney properties and not because anyone's actually reading the original imperialist propaganda version which still has you know it's still a classical work but it's one of those things that only people that care about reading like 
the hundred original Victorian novels that everyone should read before they die, they might read this Jungle Book, but I don't think it's making a lot of top ten lists anywhere. I feel like very often the genius of uh, creation and and the genius of being a pop sensation can be quite different. Like coming up with original ideas being truly groundbreaking often is rough edged, right? It's also kind of weird. So you need someone to synthesize it and make it something that everyone can dig. Another Beatles reference, you could argue the Beatles didn't really do anything particularly original. Someone else did it first. Their thing was, I guess, synthesizing it and having the massive, you know, pop marketing machine behind them. That probably helped, too, I'm sure. But <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, on, on this same note, too, like imagine I know the timelines wouldn't have matched up, but imagine trying to get um, Kipling and, and Walt Disney in the same room trying to work on this story together and Walt being like, no, 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 get rid of all of the imperialism and the occult stuff. This is like a family friendly thing it needs to have catchy songs in it um and i think that that same analogy is kind of like with the beatles like the crowley probably wouldn't have been the guy that would get on the the plane because the label told him to and then the show up and dance like the monkey and sing like the monkey you know what i mean like <laughs> do this on command crowley would just be messing with their heads so in order to make that more palpable the crowley's teachings make its way into the beatles lyrics and their artwork but the Beatles are that malleable collection of action figures that the companies can just pose and put in front of cameras and sell and market. Whereas all of the like the artsy, interesting content of their music comes from a place that would have never presented itself and like pose me, you know, put me in front of the camera. Um, and that's what makes them sort of successful is because they take that information and that content. And like you say, present it in like a nice way for everyone to enjoy. But there's something interesting, like, well, how come that original content isn't just mundane? Like, let's all just be nice to each other and, you know, shake hands with everyone. And everyone smiles, like talking about, you know, dark and occult things is what gives it that meat that people want to come back to. Right. It's not it's not just all fluff. Yeah, because I'm you know sitting here thinking that. um I mean, Disney himself was extremely aware of this. Um, oh, yeah. Well, again, he he was raised in um, Desmoulins. So he was basically a fully qualified Mason without ever having to become a Mason. But he was aware of all of those occult and very subtle undercurrents of, you know, these ancient stories that are just being retold in, in new ways. Here, I was searching uh, uh, here for this is a, a quote from Walt Disney, by the way. He, he's referring to himself in the third person. He no, says, are we going uh, to have to beep any of this out? <laughs> no, no. Okay. I'm not Walt Disney. I do a lot of things Walt Disney wouldn't do. Walt Disney doesn't smoke. I smoke. Walt Disney doesn't drink. I drink. Yeah. Attributed <laughs> to Walt Disney. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, he got that, right? He knew, like, you can't you can't go be a Crowley, Crowley and madman, you know? <laughs> and then well, you can. You on... just can't make but, that the one that people know about. Well, you can't do that and then be the host of the magical world of color. <laughs> but again, we're talking about someone that took two top Nazi scientists, one <laughs> of them on in the, the SS <laughs> with, with, you know, like awards and honors personally given to him by the third Reich. <laughs> and then he becomes like a childhood TV host that everyone aspires to like become friends with. Well, this, that's the same thing, you know, Werner von Braun doesn't 
wouldn't work for the the Nazis, but I did, quoted by Werner von Braun. Excuse me. It was kind of an awkward way to shoot her in that quote. But I mean, that's just other cases where it's clear, like, okay, we we have this fantastic television personality that you're going to play. And that's people are going to say that's you. Right. But you know who you are. Well, or at least, you know, you're not that guy. (laughs) Isn't that so weird, though, that that. It was like obvious and factual, but just the way that it gets presented and the fact that it had the authority of Disney, who was, I mean, weird to say a moral compass, but in some ways he kind of acted as like this weird moral compass in the media, even de facto at this point, right? He They set the standard of like what a G and a PG movie and what a kid's movie kind of is. Like D- Disney is sort of the, the official Nintendo seal version of kids movies at this point. Um, or at least it was when we were growing up. Now there's a lot more competition, I guess. Um, right. But I, but I think that the, it's an interesting aspect of that because again, like without Disney, that wouldn't have have come to be the same way. Yeah, I, I guess that's just one of the first like. Well, who who else would be just because I'm thinking, you know, classic era movie stars like they didn't have as strong a public persona. You'd see them in the movies, you know, you you know who John Wayne is, but you don't in the movies but you didn't really feel like you knew john wayne where everyone felt like they knew walt disney but they knew this guy that was on tv that was was not the actual person at all you know that guy the guy on tv never got pissed off he always sounded jolly you know <laughs> <laughs> so anyway it helps when you own the studio and you own the cameras and, and like right. you know <laughs> no it helps yeah it helps to have all that you know media infrastructure as well you can't do it without that that's another thing crowley didn't have he might have had like intelligence backing but that's different than you know hollywood dollars i guess that's you gotta keep the the intelligence money like on the download that's black op money right <laughs> whereas uh maybe you get both when you're the disney company well, I mean, he definitely got both. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's maybe that's another thing in the Jungle Book with us framing all the animals as different part of the psyches and then Mo- Mowgli just as the general human spirit and having to decide how he's going to present himself to the world. And that's, I know that's reading him way too much. I'm just like, you talk about it for an hour and you start coming up with those metaphors, right? <laughs> I mean, but this one more so than some of the other, especially, actually, it's hard, man. I was going to say more than, um, 101 dalmatians but after i read the the sequel about the flying the flying uh dogs that you know time travel and talk to <laughs> egyptian deities <laughs> uh yeah but but this one does have like the occult undertones aren't ones that you have to seek out and and draw these wild connections like it's literally just read the original book and it's just eastern mysticism represented in the story mixed with imperialism which is such an interesting mix because again it's like let's open our minds and then enslave these populations <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the disconnect let's open our, exactly let's open our minds right that's the yeah. key thing let's <laughs> yeah. not let's not open everyone's mind uh they weren't saying namaste to the to the folks there and except as a maybe a cultural bone to throw <laughs> yeah, oh you have to say this right before you take all their possessions just say namaste and, and it's all yeah. good I see the God in you and, and now this God's taken out all that stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> my God is better than your God, right? <laughs> that being me. <laughs> I'm having a look through uh, if I have any other fun notes. Oh, here's a fun. I wrote Dr. Ewan Snakerun. That's, that's kind of fun. <laughs> 
Oh, and I have to admit, um, mention how Ka also is a huge inspiration on again Robin Hood Snake, like like the the same facial expressions, the same sort of um, postures. I don't think it's the same voice though, right? I think they changed the voice. That might be the case. Yeah, I'm excited about that one. I I, I really hope that I don't ruin that one for myself. <laughs> I'm just sitting here feeling dumb that I made like eight Beatles references and didn't mention that they wanted the Beatles for the Vultures, but Lennon wasn't having any of that. Uh, even, well, hey, Yellow Submarine, someone else's voice in them too, so I guess he just was not into the idea of being a uh, being animated. <laughs> was this pre-Yoko 67? It would, it would have been basically yes. Pre-India for them as well. That was 68 when they went. So I, I think he had met Yoko go um the story with yoko is they met a couple times and then she just became like a creepy fan but she had enough connections uh that she kept you know could be outside Lennon's house all the time where so she's <laughs> like what is this weird woman doing look around and then eventually finds out that Lennon actually is communicating back with her so <laughs> they're screaming at each other they're just they're both going ah! I think, that, I think I was more like 69 uh primal scream therapy but yeah i, yeah. I wonder if uh if if he had gone to India first and then was approached to work on the jungle book. If that would have changed anything. That's kind of what I was getting at. I mean, I know they saw yellow submarine and we're like, Oh gee, we probably should have done our voices in that instead of having, although honestly it was probably better to get voice actors because they give better performances. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Big time. And, and like, um, they, the, uh, did this come up before where they approached Stanley Kubrick and they all wanted to be in a Lord of the Rings movie, uh, starring themselves, but Stanley Kubrick, said that he was busy working on 2001 space odyssey i i have a feeling if he wanted to he would have made time for it it was probably <laughs> like yeah yeah okay guys i'm a little busy right now yeah yeah i mean you know they're fine on screen a bit but uh, yeah it only a full yeah a full three hour musical lord of the rings <laughs> starring the beatles it, it probably would have went over as well as the star wars uh christmas special or the Starlight Express. That's a fun one. Uh, speaking of, of Starlight things, are you familiar with that? Oh, man. It's not ringing any bells. It's, Starlight it's, it's, Express? It's Andrew Lloyd Webber's Insanity Musical, which is... Um, More insane than uh, Technicolor Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat? Yes, because this one, all the characters play trains... And they're on roller skates. Um, some are steam trains, some are diesel trains. And um, I think one of them gets converted to diesel at the end. So that you have the musical where the, the actors also need to be able to roller skate well. And on top of that on the story, it's um, they're all characters from inside a child's dream. And they eventually rebel against the child as the controller of the dream. It's like totally, yeah, it's pretty... Bad. I'm getting MK Ultra vibes. <laughs> sure, why not? And there's um still uh, still a a a pretty permanent production of this in Germany, which just has pyrotechnics and stuff, and it just sounds completely insane. It's yeah, uh, kind of. So so speaking of insane, I messaged you about this movie. I've never seen it. No mobile. Have you seen No Mobile? I I haven't, and I I guess we're talking inside baseball on the cast now. But I was thinking we'll maybe pair that up with bed knobs and broomsticks. Okay, okay. It seems like because they came. <laughs> it out blew my mind. Time. Someone someone mentioned it to me as as like a fever dream that they saw, and I was like, "Are you sh are you sure?" And then I, we saw the poster, and it's like, "Oh my god, that's the kid from it's." I think it was the son 
and the daughter from Mary Poppins in it. But yeah, yeah, I can't wait to look at that one. Okay, yeah, I'm not expecting a good movie, but I'm (laughs) expecting something really weird. I'm expecting a movie. (laughs) Yeah, I'm expecting a a start and an end. Right. Oh, as far as my notes, the only other one I'm already looking at here is um that. I thought it was weird that the baby elephant is wearing a wig or, or has hair and none of the other elephants do. That's just kind of bizarre. Well, no, there was another elephant that had hair because he gets it chopped off because because they're all getting up for inspection and he gets to like the third or the fourth elephant and the, the elephant's hair is in front of his eyes. Oh, which right. In, in, right. The, in the military context, it's like you're not allowed to do that. So he whips it back and he shaves it across the top like, you know, like a true sort of like Vietnam buzz cut. I mean, I was fine that they wanted to give the vultures like mild, you know, mod, mod cuts. So that, but that made sense, I guess. So, <laughs> um, do you have anything else in, in your notes that you you really want to dive down? I'll give give you a serious moment if you need it. No, I, I mean we got over all the serious stuff. Uh, another thing too that that's hard to discount is that King Louis might have been based on the Hindu god Hanuman, um, which was the the monkey god. And a lot of the other creatures that we come in contact probably represented specific gods from Kipling, although they get distorted a little bit through the translation of the actual stories and then Kipling's version and then Disney's version and specifically Disney's like second version, because the first version was too dark and too occult and too um, much of like a, a traditional adaptation of the real book. So through those three or four degrees of separation in Game of Telephone, you lose some of those. But I think King Louis probably stands the most out as retaining a lot of that. And then another one is that him being King Louis and seeking this enlightenment, like that's his goals. He wants human enlightenment through Mowgli. And King Louis was also known as the sun god um, uh, associated with, you know, like, the the rising sun and prometheus and uh you know like luciferian sort of uh sun god star light worship enlightenment so again king louis i think is a interesting tie here it represents a lot of probably most of the original story uh kind of coming through yeah i guess it would make more sense if uh you had like chimpanzees in that role but then you couldn't have it take place in india so <laughs> You know, I'm just thinking, oh, like the what the, if you're going evolution wise, it's one you know, just one step away from humans. They just need this one thing. That's the two thousand one thing. They touch the mon or touch the monolith and you you now have fire or tool making or whatever. Yeah, now you've got the bone that's gonna kill everyone. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, the tool instantly. I mean, one thing people I think now it's becoming more common knowledge, but when the bone you know jump cuts to the satellite, that that is a nuclear silo satellite <laughs> so you're seeing yeah the, and, and represent because that bone is the one that he used to beat his fellow monkey to death right so when the they zoom in on it it's weapon. like here's the evolution of your tools but it's still just made to just destroy things if, if 2001 has some flaws that would be one that it's not clear you're looking at a, a nuclear satellite in that shot you just you have to know <laughs> but uh yeah as far as the jungle book i mean there's I do think this is probably an upper tier just as far as watching it. Um, did you see the remake from a few years ago? Uh, I fell asleep in it because it was like, yeah, no. So no, <laughs> yes, okay, but no. Okay. Yeah, I, I just saw it once, like, you know, short, probably when it first came on disc. And um, 
I do remember the temple in that one kind of sticking out as just being relatively uh, spectacular, at least. Uh, I, I wouldn't have been thinking about the occult aspect watching in like 2015 or so, but maybe a year or two later, I would have. But... Well, I think like a lot of those Disney movies, they're the remakes. They're visually astounding and they're OK to watch. But they don't capture. It's like, why did you remake it? Because the original was as good, even if not as visually impressive. Um, but I, honestly, I think that this, the animated version, right, the sixty-seven, it probably jumped up a couple ranks. I don't know where it was in my original list, but it's at least the it at least raised the same amount as Sword in the Stone dropped for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I put this in the up it here yeah the remake I, I do remember not hating it but not liking it and then the next one was the lion king and that's where i kind of drew the line i was like wait what's just animated again what are you doing and the shots are the same <laughs> so I, I i never watched anything past uh the jungle book remake as far as these live action ones although i might so have you to... still haven't seen uh cruella correct i i might hate watch pinocchio like and if i want to be really it's sadistic i in, won't it's it's honestly not even interesting as a hate watch. If you're talking about the Tom Hanks one, it, the, the 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 new Tom Hanks one, it was like he he literally phoned his performance in. It was just like they they made an AI model of him and they caught him early morning while he was on the toilet and they were like, "Tom, can you just do your lines now?" And he's like, "I haven't warmed up. I haven't practiced the accent." They're like, "It's all good. Just read it over the phone right now." And he just did it in a sitting. <laughs> All oh, right. It's uh I didn't like it at all, man. The, yeah, the Giro de Tormo one was uh a much better, but man, it, it disappointed me because I didn't want a musical. I wanted like a cool Giro del Toro sort of creepy Pinocchio. Um, but it was it seemed like he tried to inch closer to Disney in his remake, which was I don't know. I, and neither Disney of the remakes were creep impressive. Into Uncanny Valley more so. yeah <laughs> yeah like they, they both went in the wrong direction they both should have gone in like opposite directions but it's like they're trying to meet in the middle somewhere oh well well next time they'll, they'll never stop remaking pinocchio it is the one thing why why does like every director want to make pinocchio so bad it, kubrick also thought about it <laughs> really about that would have been kind of cool yeah i think I, I think well he ai right he was working on ai so i guess that was his evolution of yeah, well, well, so the original script for AI specifically was talking about a homunculus and that that Pinocchio, I mean, a, Pinocchio is a homunculus. He's literally a soulless vessel that becomes animated and serves as this companion to this old alchemist. Right. Like we've already we already saw the movie. I love Pinocchio so much, man. But that but that one is is such a direct reference to it. And Kubrick's version of ai slash pinocchio yeah it was it was gonna bring it down to almost like an alchemical manuscript like he was gonna drop some medieval grimoire style knowledge to this movie and in some conspiracy circles which i tend to be part of sometimes is that that was taken away by steven spielberg and intentionally watered down and occulted almost as like like a black mass inversion of Kubrick of like, screw you. I see what you're trying to do here. And I'm going to do the exact opposite just to, you know, as like this act of, of astral spite so that you feel it in the next world, you know, how much I've slated this creation that you're going after. And then I'm going to say that it was done in tribute to you. Ha ha, you know, like eat on that one. <laughs> 
And we're cutting 20 minutes of eyes wide shut. Who knows what was yeah, in that? Yeah, and on top of that, just for what you try to pull with eyes wide shut. I, I saw the director's cut, buddy. Guess what? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I actually revisited that one several months ago. And yeah, that's why shut. Like, plays way different now than it did when in 99 or whenever it was so <laughs> yeah post epstein it plays way different yes <laughs> it's a, definitely a crazy vibe movie I, I think when it came out everyone sort of hated it but uh, it seems to have now be, been i i would not i've heard people say it's like kubrick's best i would never say that but yeah <laughs> i want to i want to believe that somewhere on the cutting room floor there might have been kubrick's best movie in there but it's definitely not the one that got released although it is interestingly a christmas movie so it could Watch make it some, family some top 100 christmas yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> that that and die hard right because i think die hard is not is now it's now it's you're obvious if you say that's a christmas movie so <laughs> i mean my favorite one has always been gremlins and it probably always will be gremlins although i i have to say man we're getting we're getting into modern here but uh violent night which came out at the end of last year is easily top three christmas movies of all time of all genres it is oh it maybe is i'll best. have to hit that no we on my sci-fi podcast we actually did um gremlins as our christmas movie last year so <laughs> i mean the whole it starts at christmas like all like all the major plot points revolve around it being christmas um like there's multiple christmas related deaths right there's one where um they kill them with like the the christmas tree lights and man it, it's a christmas movie it starts out with uh the old lady holding the the frosty head and bringing it into the bank and yelling at everyone so also uh prometheus is a christmas movie that's that's fun to think about <laughs> is it or is it, it just happen while there's snow no they make specific references to it being christmas in the movie really okay interesting. Watch that. yeah 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 <laughs> actually i, I did we got Gordon White on for a podcast where he made a very strong case that that's a Christmas movie, and I bought it. So, <laughs> okay, now you're peddling. Yeah, yeah, but um, I, I guess we wrap this one up for today. Uh, everyone already knows what we're doing next because we talked about it five minutes ago. So, <laughs> but in case you fell asleep for a few minutes, that's um, bed knobs and broomsticks, and and the what's the gnome again? Gnome mobile and gnome mobile. Yeah. This one I haven't been able to. Man, maybe I can give you some homework because if we can find some more information about this, it will be unbelievably fascinating. But apparently, Walt Disney had some connections to the Bohemian um, Club, right? The Bohemian Grove, and the Nomobile takes place in Redwood Forest. Um, it's not necessarily the exact same one from Bohemian Grove by name, but the but the way this movie came up was because apparently he. He was friendly and might have attended a couple of them, um, but that there was another special technology that he was working on and he was going to do a movie projection in a Redwood forest somewhere. And this might have been, he might have been specifically working on like a special Bohemian Grove Disney extravaganza, like for their eyes only type of projection system. And it just, I don't think it ever came to fruition and it might have spurred some of the disconnect between Disney and Bohemian Grove where he then um, started the man was like the Rancheros or the Valleros or something like his little 
Western secret society club where they were going to take things more seriously than those guys over at, at the Bohemian club did. So I wonder if there's anything at all that like intersects his rift with them. And this rumor that I just heard for the first time a couple weeks ago, but that, that Walt Disney personally was working on a special projection technology that would work in the Redwoods. And that sounds like a Bohemian Grove play. So okay. I don't know if you can find anything at all about that. I'm morbidly curious about it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's a good teaser for what we'll get into next time, I guess. But uh, uh, it, it it's now, as far as the listeners concerned, it, it's March. So what's up with you? Oh, uh, speaking here in in March. Uh, let's see. Oh, I've got a, a new comic that should be at least available to sign up for a notification on, on the website on paranoidamerican.com. It's called Mold, and it's a, a story about a lunch lady who gets revenge on these nasty kids at a school that she works at and also becomes the conduit through a nasty case of toenail fungus that connects her to the original uh, mycelium superorganism that controls the earth. So this old lunch lady talks to the original bioform of Earth through her toenail fungus and it helps ones. her get revenge on nasty kids. <laughs> okay. I'm thinking about mold. So it, now, it's though. a real it's a real big Disney sort of adaptation. <laughs> we're we're marketing it towards the Disney crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a... Well, I did think several times in this movie, like what does uh Mowgli smell like? Can't be good. So <laughs> Uh, <laughs> as for and oh yes uh i guess you should shout out where people get that oh yeah so paranoidamerican.com and at paranoidamerican on instagram and then lately i've just been going hard in the paint on um memes and ai and i've got a whole bunch of like ai bidens and clintons and <laughs> all sorts of stuff uh and i also have been taking my my American cryptids coloring book, which is by far the most successful book in our entire catalog. And I've been taking the coloring book pages and rendering all those out with AI and all kinds of weird and creepy and cute and realistic renditions. So if any of that uh, strikes your fancy, yeah, definitely check out the Instagram page. Yeah. I just take a step back from the AI uh, myself. It's getting a little weird. Although I did make the podcast artwork for this podcast with the AI. That's called Disney. Um, I guess I'll just, go from that into a plug other ones we do at podcastio podcastius on patreon include imprisoned in prison another prisoner podcast uh <laughs> artwork is made with ai what else made with ai time enough podcast about the twilight zone uh i made that one with some ai so i did use it i used my one week trial quite well so uh but yes if you could support us on patreon you keep the lights on and the zoom up i guess Okay, I, I well, actually, I'm going to run into the rice fields, not the jungle, but I'm, I'm going to do something along those lines now, so.